Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am joined today by two of our Monday uh, regulars, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey. How are you? I am exceedingly well. Thank you, David. And David Sanger of the New York Times. Hi, David. How are you? Uh, we are also joined by uh, Tom Nichols, uh, who's affiliated with all sorts of places like the Naval War College and the Harvard Extension Program, and also recently the Atlantic Magazine. You're now a regular contributor to the Atlantic Magazine. Hi, Tom. How are you? Hi, David. Good to be with everybody. So um, some people will listen to this episode of the podcast when Joe Biden is president of the United States. Um, uh, I, there's a lot of, of, of demonstrations of enthusiasm going on here on the video. Um, and uh, we're just in the home stretch here. There's, you know, sort of when we're doing this, there's just hours to go. Um, I've got a few questions of substance, but before we do that, given that we've been through four remarkable years, uh, I just, like to know how you're feeling about all this right now. And I'll start with you, Corey. I am feeling desperately grateful that the institutions of democracy in our sweet country have held, despite the enormous challenge that President Trump, his supporters, and his enablers have put us all through these last four years. Tom? I am feeling the sense of relief that you have when you step out of a car that you finally got to your destination with a drunk driver. Um, you should never have been in the car. You should never have been driving and he's probably going to do it again or someone else will, but you made it. And there's a great sense of like Corey gratitude and relief and joy. But I, <clears throat> I, that is all tempered by my trepidation that the social dysfunction that created this is not over. No question. David, how do you feel right now? A little anxious about what the next 19 hours will bring, you know, lots of lots of pardons, lots of all that. But the worst fears of what could happen uh, didn't quite come together. The institutions held. Um, I um, share, though, the concern about whether or not we're going to see a continuing um, undercutting of the government by the fact that you've got a third of the country telling pollsters, maybe a little more, that they don't believe that Joe Biden is legitimately elected. In other words, that they bought the lie. And the question to my mind that I really just cannot answer is, will that fade because Donald Trump will fade? Or will that live on and haunt us for some time? What's the answer, Corey? 
I absolutely think it will live on and haunt us for some time. But uh, as the tiara of optimism is once again in my possession, I will point out how much of a difference uh, it makes to have uh, the FBI and law enforcement agencies assiduously engaged in managing this problem. I was, um, I was still associated with West Point in about 2010 when the Center for Combating Terrorism there put out its report suggesting that the rise of right-wing terrorism was a major concern. And a whole bunch, uh, we, the institution got, got so much negative press and so much uh, concern from former graduates and people in the Pentagon and it proved incredibly prescient. And I think one of the really damaging things of the last four years is the way the president, his supporters and, and enablers have downplayed that the most important terrorist threat to the United States is American citizens who are white nationalists and violent. Um, and so I noticed that the call to to storm state capitals on Sunday produced almost nothing now that the FBI operating on tips from more than 200,000 American citizens um, have begun identifying and, and charging, arresting and charging the violent insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, Tom, you've got a piece coming out uh, in, I think, in the Atlantic tomorrow. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Uh, uh, that sort of picks up on this. Maybe you'd want to pick up on what Corey said. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, it's about seriousness. I think the the people who stormed the Capitol, um, you know, showed they were the they were the apotheosis of how unserious a country we've become. Uh, particularly under Trump. I mean, I think that's been happening for a while, but Trumpism was really about unseriousness. Nothing matters. Nothing has consequences. Actions and words don't mean anything. And suddenly these folks are finding out, whoa, wait a minute. If I actually, you know, storm, I mean, I worked in the Senate but to see these, these lunatics on the floor of the, of, you know, this beloved chamber, um, you know, was really something shocking. And I'm glad that people are now finding out, whoa, I can't just, you know, Instagram this and call it a day and somehow walk away from it. No, you've committed a felony. You could go to jail. These are terrible things that have happened. The only, you know, I, I can't take the, um, the, the tiara, or in my case, the scepter of righteous optimism, but I will say one thing. I think for most of the Trump cult, this is going to be like the day the spaceship didn't come. And many of them will simply fall away or walk, walk away or you know, disengage from politics. What I'm worried about is what Corey just alluded to. I think that Trump and the people, his enablers have created another cadre of Timothy McVeigh's out there. I'm not worried about a mass movement I'm worried about a, a handful of small groups that are just, you know, determined to inflict one more violent primal yawp on the rest of society um, because of this. And I think Trump and his people own that directly. 
So, David, uh, today, as as we as we're recording this, uh, we've started to hear the first of the hearings of Biden cabinet members being um, confirmed or you know being heard first, um, and it is very striking in the course of 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 what we've heard already. Um, how different this is all going to be. And one of one thing picks up on what Tom is saying, uh, Avril Haines, uh, who's just an extraordinary pick to be the director of national intelligence, a really remarkable woman in every possible respect, very well qualified, but also very interesting uh, brain, uh, was talking about a number of things. One of the things she, she talked about was uh, uh, opening up some files and, and doing a report on what actually happened uh, around the Khashoggi murder. But um, another thing she talked about was starting to dig deeper and, 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 and launch a broader effort on tracking domestic terrorism. And that seems like a kind of a watershed to me. You know, Tom just, just mentioned it. For the past 20 years, we've, we've had a focus that's been primarily uh, international terror. As Corey said, people have been aware of this for, for quite some time. But... Um, how big a portion of national security thinking do you think domestic terror is going to be over the next few years? Well, I think it'll be pretty big. Um, let me just say a couple of things about Avril, who I've known for um, many years. Um, first of all, I think part of what you were hearing today was the sound of somebody who has not spent her life entirely in the cocoon of the intelligence community. She's been in and out of that, but she's also, you know, run a bookstore in Baltimore and built an airplane with her husband and flown around the world. And she's got a much wider view than people who've traditionally held that job. And as I think as a result, you know, she's also been deputy CIA director and deputy national security advisor. It's not as if she's not aware of, of um, their instincts. The Khashoggi thing is really an interesting test because Basically, during the Trump years, they didn't want to hear any bad news about the Saudis. And I remember Mike Pompeo blowing up at a bunch of reporters when we raised the question anew of Khashoggi, uh, the Khashoggi murder and um, the Crown Prince's uh, responsibility uh, for that. And he basically was, you know, if it hadn't been somebody who was a dissident and a columnist, you guys wouldn't be paying any attention to it, was basically what he was saying. And what Avril is saying is, no, we're actually willing to go risk a good part of the relationship with the Saudis in order to have some truth out here. That's a very different mindset. I think the big question that's going to face her on the domestic terrorism side is that most of the agencies she's responsible for with the exception of the FBI, notable exception of the FBI and the DHS intelligence component are foreign agencies that really cannot follow their, their foreign intelligence operations and they are not legally permitted to operate inside the United States. So it's gonna require a very different focus of the FBI away from the traditional terrorism mission that they've had since 9-11, counterterrorism mission that they've had since 9-11 to really put a, a focus on this issue. And it'd be interesting to see if she can pull that off. Well, she can. Uh, I, I should add, you know, her, her degree is in physics. And uh, I was also pleased to see the president put his science advisor 
uh, who's both a mathematician and a trailbreaking geneticist, um, on the cabinet. And it's great to see this return of science to the center of the discussion. And in the past four years, she's been teaching at Columbia, which turned out at least one member of our group here today. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Not uh, sure whether that's a good news or bad news, but whatever it is, it, it is. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, let's not get into that. But, you know, Corey, uh, David m mentions how different this is and how the Saudis are going to take it differently. Uh, following uh, the Navalny return to Russia, we had Jake Sullivan make a very strong statement um, of a kind that you didn't hear out of this administration. Uh, I've seen some of the remarks that Tony Blinken is 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 uh, preparing to offer in his hearings today. Um, I'm going to make a prediction, and I would like to run it by you and Tom and 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 David. My prediction is that the United States will return to a traditional role in international affairs, um, more engaged on a multilateral basis, more engaged with its allies, playing more of a forward-leaning role um, <clears throat> uh, on issues like environment and human rights and democracy, um, more uh, inclined to stand up to um, um, autocrats and authoritarians and potential threats, a more traditional U.S. foreign policy role, much quicker than people think. I mean, I, 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 I don't quite say it's like flipping a switch, but it's going to be pretty close to flipping a switch. What do you I think? I think that's a pretty safe bet. Where I think the challenge will come so I noticed that um, Jake Sullivan in the interregnum between his announcement and the administration taking office, the only issues on which he took, made public statements were all human rights issues. They were about the national security law in Hong Kong. They were about the Saudi sentencing and terrorism court, a, a female rights activist. They were about Navalny. Uh, and so it's interesting that the only policy issue uh, that he engaged on was on human rights grounds. And I do think that that makes it likely that it will quickly be the center of administration policy. But what do you do when you get to the hard cases, right? Running up the score on the Saudis is not difficult. Um, but uh, what are you going to do about Volkswagen uh, using Uyghur sla slave labor at its plant in China or uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, or these, there are going to be difficult choices to make about how you engage the interests of countries we actually like and we want to align with us on many of the most important issues on the American foreign policy agenda. And, and I think Europeans, for example, are gonna be really taken aback because they have you know, really uh, enjoyed and indulged the fun of talking about American hypocrisy and failings. Um, and when the standard comes back to being universal again, which I ardently hope it does, because it's good for the United States and good for the world for us to be a beacon of those values. Uh, it's going to make some relationships that matter to us a little bit more difficult than I think people are yet banking on. 
Hey, Corey, at, at the risk of disagreeing with you just slightly uh, on the last day of the Trump administration, where we should, you know, um, uh, all be perhaps um, uh, discussing on the same page, I recall that standing up to the Saudis was hard for the Obama administration. They had a couple of opportunities where they needed to, and they kind of whiffed. And it'll be really interesting to see if what's largely the same set of players. I mean, Jake Sullivan was obviously in Biden's national security advisor and in the State Department. Tony Blinken was deputy secretary of state. Avril Haines obviously was national security, deputy national security advisor. It's going to be interesting to see if this, this tone change that you rightly notice in, in Jake Sullivan's Twitter feed actually turns into policy. What, what do you think, Tom? How, how quickly are we going to sort of flip the switch and what, what, what are the nuances that you think will make it different? Well, th we are going to flip a switch quickly because we're going from, we've been talking about Biden's foreign policy. We're going to actually have a foreign policy. We haven't had a foreign policy. We've had a bunch of ad hoc transactional, you know, reflexes and arrangements that people have tried to divine as some kind of foreign policy, but now we're actually going to, I mean, this is a challenge for Biden because he's actually going to put forward a consistent foreign policy and people are actually going to expect that he will stick to it. The one place there's, I'll say that Biden's job is harder and easier. It's harder in the sense that our friends and allies now know that we are capable of what happened over the past four years. Until now, it was hypothetical. You can say, well, you know, America always has this crazy isolation streak and this nutty populism and this no-nothingism, but you know, they always do the right thing. Well, for four years, we didn't do the right thing. So it's no longer notional or hypothetical that America can lose its mind. And Biden now has to carry that baggage of saying, even though I'm a sensible, serious person, people are gonna be able to say, yes, but your country is capable of becoming psychotic in a way that we never expected. The easier part, and this is where I, I think I tend more toward date where David is, um, you know, Corey, I, I, I would say that in, in some sense, Biden gets to call a, a kind of timeout and say, yes, all of these are serious problems of, of human rights and consistency in policy, but, you know, we've just swum the English Channel without drowning. We have just managed to make it out of, you know, this car wreck. So I'm going to call, uh, you know, a halt on too much to be expected of us in a way that I think you couldn't have done if this were a normal predecessor of an administration, that these would all be things that were still on the hopper. People would look at Biden and say, you know, you knew this was coming. How do you deal with it? I think Biden's going to be able to walk in and say, you know, normal people haven't been allowed near any of this for four years. You're going to have to give us something of a reset here. So Sorry. I think- you know, that'll happen quickly. Um, I think the kind of more detailed issues will have to wait, but I also think Biden's gonna have to carry the baggage of American history with him now as every president will have to for generations to come. Yeah, so I strongly agree with that. Ernest Hemingway rationalized his writer's block after World War II by saying that after hearing noise that loud, he couldn't hear anything played delicately anymore. And I think, you know, the Biden administration is going to get a pass on civil military issues associated with Lloyd Austin's uh, nomination because nobody can hear the delicate music of civil military relations 
in the absence of the loud cacophony of craziness from the Trump administration. David, if you were to sit down with foreign leaders, as I know you often do, they often come up to your Vermont estate and uh, you know spend spend pleasant days with you and the Bears, um, and and they were to say to you, "How is this going to be different? How am I going?" Is it, you know, am I going to notice a difference or as some people, I, and I've read a number of, you know, thoughtful takes, uh, we live in the age of a million takes and I've, I've read a number that have said, well, the United States is going to be so inward looking, um, things won't even look that different from Trump because we're going to be dealing with so many domestic issues. But if you're, you know, um, a foreign leader, what, what would you tell them? What would you tell them? Well, a, a couple of, first of all, not that many seem to come to Vermont and fewer milk the cows, okay? Um, I see, you, you look uh, for them to be the help actually. That's right, that's right. right. Um, I think if you are one of the core American allies, the Europeans, the um, South Koreans, the Japanese, the Australians, you, you will notice the difference in dealing with American diplomats. You'll notice the difference in dealing to a lesser degree with the intelligence agencies because the United States, I think, will be lecturing less and listening more. If you are China, I'm not sure you're gonna notice much of a difference. I think that the I think that we have all seen the Democrats turn so hardline on Russia and China in particular that uh, while things may be phrased better, um, uh, and while there may be um, uh, fewer declarations of unilateral action, I suspect the policy will remain somewhat unchanged. In the Russia case, it probably is gonna get a little bit tougher is my guess. Um, so I think it's gonna, it's gonna vary. Um, I do think that the Europeans would be making a huge mistake if they thought, okay, the pressure's off, we don't have to go pay for our own defense now, you know, we're not gonna get these lectures anymore about pulling out of NATO and all that, because I think the Biden folks recognize that there were a couple of things that um, Trump was on the right line, he just did it badly, that uh, they had to go pursue. And one of them is to have a Europe that is more in sync with the US on issues of both defense and technology. Interesting. Corey, you know, one of the things that strikes me as I hear David talk is that in two weeks, we've gone from Biden will be this because we know sort of Biden and what Democrats do to actually knowing the people who are going to be responsible for it. So when he says China will be like this, and we know that Kurt Campbell is going to be quarterbacking the Indo-Pacific group in the NSC, and we know, you know, that he, you know where he comes from and both in terms of, you know, security issues and economic issues. And we know Laura Rosenberger, one of our friends who's regularly on our podcast, is going to be the senior director for China in the NSC. Um, uh, and that she's had certain kinds of special concerns recently, disinformation and cyber. You know, it, it, it colors all of this. I was also pleased to note, by the way, and so many of our friends are in this administration that we'll just have to you know, we'll get to them one by one, but I was pleased to note that today the rumor came that uh, Mika Oyang, who was on our show last week, is going to be Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber, 
um, which is kind of interesting. But as we I know, thought she told us last week that she was starting up a, a podcast on Cyber. You can't do that from the Pentagon. <laughs> yeah, well, started and finished it, David. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, podcasting is the is the is the you know stepping stone towards uh, leading nations. Um, in any event, um, it's it's less abstract. We kind of know who these people. We we kind of know who these people are. The interesting thing to me, and this goes back to your question, is it's it you know you might say, well, they're all Obama people, but Joe Biden's not Obama, and this crowd doesn't feel the same as they did, and some of the things they've talked about seem different. Whether it's you know, or or maybe they're picking up where Obama left off because there is more focus on climate more focus on certain multilateral issues. It seems a little bit more progressive as foreign policy goes. Do you, do you think that, do you get that same impression? I do get that same impression. Um, and I agree with you that personnel is policy, uh, but also circumstances dictate the freedom of action, right? I think President Obama um, had policy constraints by circumstances, partly by being our first black American elected president, um, partly by the nature of Republican opposition to him, partly by his focus on healthcare as a major issue on his agenda that crowded out some other things. Um, and also partly you will recall the ease with which he, you know, said, I'm with which he believed he was always the smartest guy in the room, that he could be a better speechwriter than his speechwriter, he could be a better, um, right? That's not Joe Biden. And so even the same people in a different set of circumstances are gonna have different kinds of latitudes. And the, the demands of the pandemic are opening up all sorts of government, um, activity and government spending that President Obama could have cried himself to sleep and never gotten, right? That all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden healthcare is national security. And that's something President Obama had tried very hard to persuade Americans of. And the pandemic has brought home the truth of it. Well, I think something else happened there, by the way, though which we don't, uh, we, we haven't talked about, uh, but, but there's been a kind of a purge in the democratic um, expert establishment, policy establishment of the Wall Street crowd. The, the, you know, Janet Yellen is not from the Bob Rubin crowd. Um, and when she sat in front of the, the, nice point. The, the Senate today, she was like, don't worry about those deficits. Bob Rubin was, you know, about that stuff. Larry Summers is still about that stuff. Those people aren't there anymore. And so that has an effect. Now, one of the big, I think when they pick the, you know, 50 uh, top books of the Trump era, Tom, their, you know, death of expertise is going to be in there because it is so on the money. But your theory is about to be tested because um, you got to admit this, this, this Biden team is full of expertise. I mean, well, it is, it is, it is, it is all about that kind of credentialing, don't you think? Th this is a great place to point out that 
um, the first draft of what of the stuff I wrote about the death of expertise was in late 2013. And it wasn't really about Trump. It was about our kind of, you know, epidemic of ignorance. And so, uh, you know, I, to think about the Biden team as the, the experts, I don't really think of them that way. I think of them as just people who are not ignorant. I mean, Trump, and again, they're going to get a, a pass because Trump brought in people specifically. This is like the old, you know, Wall Street Journal op-ed page where they, they wanted people who didn't know anything about economics because they thought it would be more interesting to write that way. Trump went out of his way to bring in people who absolutely didn't know anything. So I don't look at this as the return of the experts and that now there's an expert benchmark. This is simply people who know where things are on a map, who know where, you know, the amount of money we spend on foreign aid. Yes, they have long experience in it, um, but you're not, you're not going out and bringing in a Henry Kissinger or Gene Kirkpatrick. You're bringing in wonks who are kind of like experts, but mostly, you know, through experience. So I, I'm, I guess I'm, all of this is my way of saying lowering the expectation on the triumph of the experts, because again, this is like the difference between somebody who knows how to fly a plane and someone who doesn't know how to fly a plane. It doesn't mean they're the best experts in the world, it just means you'd rather um, have them in the cockpit. I think one place where, where Biden is going to get latitude on foreign policy is that for, the public doesn't understand foreign policy and they don't care about it. And that's actually because foreign policy will go back to being boring, God willing, that Biden will be able to just sort of do ordinary things that will not be presented as extraordinary or inflammatory. I mean, Trump made everything into a crisis of, you know, we have to fight with NATO about funding and we have to bomb Syria, but we can't have any more Middle East. I mean, there was no sense that foreign policy is a normal part of being a great power. And I'm hoping that when Biden comes in and this team of wonks, which I think is even more important than bringing in some superstar diplomat or someone who's written a hundred books I'm actually relieved to see to see that the people coming in are people most people don't know about. So they can just go and do their jobs without having to become television personalities in the meantime. I think that actually is a is something that can really work in Biden's favor and the administration's favor. David, I would I would add, yeah, I would just add a, a thought to I agreed with every everything that was uh, there. I think these are all we've also brought in people who fundamentally believe in the institutions, right? Yeah. I mean, Tillerson I meant, I meant came to say in, that. They're institutionalists. Yeah. Tillerson came in. First announcement was, uh, how are we going to cut the State Department by 30%? Okay, even Pompeo abandoned that. But you're not going to hear Tony Blinken come in and say, I really don't understand why it takes all these people to go run American foreign policy, number one. Um, number two is, um, they believe in shades of gray. And I, I think you were uh, absolutely right that, uh, you know, we were doing this by proclamation. The third thing is they actually do believe in policy process, which sounds incredibly boring and is even more boring to write about because uh, I've been writing about it for, you know, 35 or 40 years and Rothkopf's the only one who reads me, uh, Corey on occasion, you know. Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is they're going to run a process and ask the question that Corey asked before, which is, you know, if this is going to be the standard for Saudi Arabia, 
shouldn't it also be the standard for other places and other friends, including, you know, Volkswagen, as you pointed out? That was not a question that was ever asked during the Trump administration because they wanted to view each one in our own specific interest and intellectual consistency here didn't count for much. It was for saps who weren't thinking about America first. Can I just add a point about process? Because I think this is really important. Again, process is boring. And over the, I'm I'm supposed to remind everybody I don't speak for the Naval War College, Um, but in teaching seminars about policy, you know, to graduate level students, uh, I, when we were talking about the policy process over the past four years, I'd say, I'm not sure what to tell you. Um, I'm not sure how to explain the interagency process in the Trump years because people like Rex Tillerson, whatever his you know, magical abilities as a CEO, he simply had no idea what he was doing. I mean, he just didn't. And, it's, and I think you know, one other maybe hopeful thing here is that we stop trying to import skill sets this, this, David, this will go back to your point about experts. Maybe the thing that makes me most hopeful is that we'll stop trying to import skill sets from other professions into government. I'm hoping that we have finally, at least for a while, learned that a skill set in business uh, doesn't translate to a skill set in diplomacy or, or running a large government agency. But you know, th- these were people who were enemies of the process for reasons they themselves could not explain and therefore, when I was trying to explain it to other people, I'd say, I don't really understand what they're doing, and I'm not sure how this process works, and I'm not sure I can explain how decisions are being made, and I'm not sure they could either. That's going to be a welcome change, I think. Yeah. So, Corey, you know, you remember back, as does David, how you know we've been doing these things for a long time. Um, and I took a particular degree of pride in the fact that in the early days that we were all podcasting together, the Obama uh, team... Um, some members in particular started using the term the blob to refer to people like us because we were being critical of them. Uh, And I think a number of people who may have just picked up on deep state radio, which has taken place during the Trump administration may expect that we are going to, you know, we were very critical on Trump and we're going to be big cheerleaders for the Biden administration. Um, And there's certainly a lot to be grateful for in this transition, Um, but that's not going to happen. And we're going to start, you know, looking, you know, with a critical eye at, at what happens in, in the Biden years. Um, and, uh, you know, in that vein, and, you know, as a kind of a good faith down payment on that, I've listened to what Tom just said, and David said, I have a concern. Um, one of my concerns is, you know, Democrats like to talk and they like to have committees. And uh, I'm a big believer, you know, and I've written a lot about this stuff and process um, discipline sticking to the process. Uh, But I've also seen what happened when you get competing fiefdoms. Um, And, you know, of course, the NSC was created to stop that. But we've got an NSC, we have a domestic policy council, we now have a former Secretary of State running uh, things that pertain to climate, who's going to have his own little group within uh, the State Department, we've got each of the various agencies, we have the NEC, and how, you know, that relates to the Domestic Policy Council, which is being upgraded, is unclear. We've got many more people in the cabinet than we used to. You know, the cabinet at times in the past has been 10, 12 people. It's now 24 people. And while I cheer the fact that half of them are women and I cheer a lot of the diversity and the quality of people, I see that there is the potential for a lot of cooks 
Um, and, 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 and it may be hard to find our way to real quarterbacks. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I do think that's a potential. If the Trump administration was uncoordinated malicious chaos, the Biden administration might turn out to be well-meaning, uh, too many cooks in the kitchen and indecisiveness. Um, it looks to me like the administration believes it's operating on the uh, George H.W. Bush model, right? Of calm, competent professionals who work easily and comfortably together and who use processes fairly. And I hope that's true, but the John Kerry example, um, it uh, does suggest that there may be uh, some messiness around the edges. My guess though, is that uh, they're likely to be pretty easily consensual uh, in the group. And also it's not the first rodeo for any of these guys, right? Avril Haines was deputy national security advisor. She knows how to gently edge uh, former secretary of state Kerry out of the conversation. Um, and probably do it so gently, it will be a business school case rather than something he notices while it's happening. So I'm not overly concerned about that. I, I think uh, compared to the problems of the last four years, it'll be a huge relief to have the normal problems. You know, Derek Chalet, who's going in as the counselor to the secretary of state, and I have been paired up a whole bunch in the last four years. And our opening joke is always, we can hardly wait to go back to disagreeing with each other again, because that will mean that normalcy has returned to the process of American foreign and defense policy. Well, I'm sure we'll get there soon enough. Tom, you got two minutes left. Um, yeah. Uh, as a former as a former Republican, you don't have to convince me that Democrats are obsessive about process. And the, when I saw the John Kerry appointment, I, my shoulders sort of slumped and I said, <laughs> OK, you know, this is how Democrats do things. On the other hand, uh, I want to echo what Corey said. I, as she was talking, I was thinking, you know, this is a much better thing to argue about than whether or not Steve Bannon should be sitting in the National Security Council or whether Seb Gorka should be walking around unsupervised in the West Wing. So if the biggest problem, you know, and I, I hope to join the ranks of honest critics of the Biden administration, I've said to people over and over again, I'm, I'm pushing for Joe Biden. I'm probably gonna like half the things he does, if that many, and I'm happy to, you know, have these normal arguments, but at least I am not kind of sitting here at my desk, staring at the screen and saying, Steve Bannon is sitting in the National Security Council? That happened? That's a thing? So if this is the worst thing we argue about, God bless us all. Um, David, can I, can I, can I um, uh, entertain our deep state um, listeners for a moment with one brief scene from four years ago, like next week, about Steve Bannon and the NSC that would just to remind you of what the world is like without process? We have 60 seconds. Okay. Steve Bannon sat in the White House without a security clearance, writing executive orders that first week, including one that leaked to the New York Times early on, several leaked to the Times, but I remember in that first week opening up my 
cell phone and seeing the drafts of these executive orders, including one that would have reopened the secret sites, the black sites around the world where the U.S. held people they had snatched in the war on terrorism and conducted all kinds of um, interrogation techniques that we came to regret later on. And the reason that these documents leaked was to warn the incoming Secretary of Defense and the incoming CIA director that Steve Bannon was sitting there writing executive orders that the president would sign without reading. I don't think you're going to see that happen in the next week. It's true. Well, we'll have plenty of time to discuss that next week. We may not have the administration's uh, team in place then. I've just seen a news item cross the wires that Josh Hawley, uh, you may know him as a traitorous seditionist uh, and a general all around kind of jerk. Uh, and I say this with a lot of respect to your St. Louis Cardinals there, Corey. Um, but Josh Hawley has said that he's going to block the nomination of uh, uh, Andrew um, Mayorkas as the de for Department of Homeland Security because he hasn't explained, you know, how he's going to protect our southern border or some such thing. So we could be into shenanigans uh, like we've seen thus far. Um, Josh Hawley, in my view, has no place in the United States Senate any longer, but that's another issue. Um, but that's why we're here. We're here uh, every day. Um, on our Thursday show, we're going to be joined, speaking of the southern border, um, by Representative Veronica Escobar of Texas, uh, who has been uh, a leader on immigration issues, but will also be able to talk to us about um, uh, the state of, of, of the impeachment issue and other things. Uh, so we'll ask you to join us for that and for other things that we've got coming, which are special. Go to the dsrnetwork.com for more information on that. Um, and, uh, you know, enjoy the beginning of a new era and just as importantly, the end of a really bad one. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening and thank you to um, Corey and to Tom and to David for a great discussion and hopefully we'll have you all again back here soon. Bye-bye.